0: Hi, I'm Susan Clark. And I'm Chris Marie Campbell. Welcome to the Beauty of Conflict podcast. Have you ever wanted to take some of what you've learned on the podcast to the next level? Well, check out our new step-by-step, easy-to-use team kit to get your team from avoiding conflict to discovering the beauty in conflict. To learn more, go to www.thriving.com forward slash team kit. That's www.thriveinc.com forward slash T-E-A-M-K-I-T. Hi there, I'm Chris Marie Campbell and I have a special guest today, Dr. Nicole Tetro, who is a compassionate neuroscientist, author, meditation teacher, and international speaker on the topics of neurodiversity, neurodevelopment, creativity, mental health, and wellness. Her book, Insight into a Bright Mind, explores groundbreaking research examining the experiences of unique, creative, and intense brains while advocating for new directions of human diversity and neurodiversity. Nicole received her PhD from California Institute of Technology, Caltech, in biology, specializing in neurodevelopment and neurodegenerative disorders. She's the founder of Awesome Neuroscience and translates the most promising neuroscience and positive psychology for people to live their best life. Who doesn't want that? Nicole leads a new generation of meditation practices by fusing novel discoveries in neuroscience with ancient lineage of Asian meditation. He believes we have the ability to wire our minds for positive plasticity through compassion and wisdom and live the life we dream. Wow, how yummy is that? I'm so excited (laughs) to talk to you, Nicole. Welcome. I'm excited to talk to you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Absolutely. One of the things I would love to know how you came to your work and what I'm thinking of even when I was reading your bio, a lot of what we do is work with business teams. And even in there's so much more in the business community for neurodiversity and there's might be some resistance to it, but allowing for how different people think and process and engage. So why don't you first tell us where how you even got interested in this line of work?
1: For me, neuroscience came to me when I was in college. I was 18, and my mom was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And for me, really exploring the human mind and the brain was a way to understand and really to reduce her suffering and the suffering of others. And as I grew more and more in the field of neuroscience and academic science, what I began to see were a couple of things that A, science wasn't working fast enough and we needed new ways. And the second piece really was that I wanted to share the latest science that was happening. By the time a research study happens, it takes seven years. And so I wanted people to have access to the most useful information. And then really what I began to do, which is a lot in alignment with the work that you do, was really recognizing that even though there are physical things we could do to reduce our suffering, pain activates no matter what, if it's physical pain or emotional pain, it activates the same area in the brain. But what I really began to understand with my mother's neurodegenerative disease was really how the invitation of meditation offered a bit of grace and the ability to sit in presence with the levels of suffering that science couldn't fix.
0: I really, oh, that's that's touching, Nicole, because, yeah, sometimes you just can't get rid of the pain. And so how do we become bigger than and be with what is happening? So, no wonder you, the teachings, the ancient teachings of meditation you wove in. I think that's quite powerful.
1: Yeah. And it was really for my suffering. I think that we talk about how you work with conflict resolution. And for me, my reactionary pattern was really being a fixer out of anxiety and a fear based state. And what I really found was as I, was able to sit more and more with presence, that I could shift my neural patterns, shift my mind state into more of a loving and compassionate state. And I thought, this is the stuff. It's
0: so true. And I think a lot of people, I don't even think I understood presence. I've just started meditating in the last five or seven years and more and more as I've developed. And that ability to be with my anxiety, where it is in my body and be present with it or the pain that's in my body. And it's, I think before it would just be like, it's everywhere. It's me. And I can't get away from it versus what I found. And you probably have a brain reason why this is, but as I'm with it, like there's a part of me that then starts to observe it. And so there's the larger part of me
1: and then my anxiety
0: or my suffering or my pain. Does that resonate?
1: Yeah. And that's really in meditation called the witnessing role, right? Where you're able to be the watcher rather than the reactor, where the pain no longer defines you. And it's even identifying language around pain. Oh, I'm in pain. Okay. Let's explore. Is it stinging? Is it dull? Is it throbbing? And the more that you can really explore and inquire with these difficulties, the more you can realize, okay, I'm experiencing this, not I am this. I'm in pain versus saying I'm experiencing pain. And it's these subtle mind shifts that we can play and learn with language. And what you're talking about is that noting phase is... Where the merging of the mindfulness and awareness come into being okay to be with that present awareness of how where do I invite compassion for the suffering in this moment? Yeah, that's such a it's easy to say, but it's definitely a cultivation.
0: I know I have a ha, have working with my own pattern of. Oh, there's pain. I want to get away from it. I want to react. I want to fix, or in my outside world, I want to fix that immediate desire to let me get away versus can I be with, slow down and be with and be bigger than and witness it like you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And I love being like a detective, like stinging, throbbing, because then it's not just this big thing of pain. It's the sensation and I'm sensing, which probably activates a different part of my brain versus thinking about it. Tell me where I'm wrong or if that makes sense.
1: That's the emergence, right? I think the perceptions create our thought, right? So there's going to be the sensory cortex that's going to be activated, the pain regions in the brain, you're going to have that. Then where kind of the thought about that emerges is when you start analyzing with your autobiographical memories and you get the limbic and the hippocampus on, right? And then that's where I think that shift of the neural patterns happen. It's an absolute practice. And I think the thing with meditation and wiring our mind, it's little steps, little moments where you're planting these seeds little by little, and you begin to see the effects. It's not people have transcendental experiences. It's a form of meditation and that's a beautiful practice in itself. But when you're working with chronic pain and when we know studies show, the amazing thing when you think about this is that there's been over 16,500 studies on meditation showing how it reduces fear, anxiety, physical pain, and the list goes on. And when you really realize that there are like the mindfulness-based stress reduction that was designed by Jon Kabat-Zinn in the early years to work with patients in hospitals that the doctors could not reach and how doing that eight-week program shifted their consciousness about their connection, their awareness of their pain, And in that, they show later years how really the amygdala, the area of the brain where we experience pain over time, meditating actually reduces in size, and the frontal cortex, where we have that higher emotional intuition and regulation, actually expands. And the stuff works. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. It does. I love it that there's so
0: many studies that show that. And for my own practice this last year and a half, I have found, because I came to this self-directed neuroplasticity, my own path, because of my chronic pain. But then I realized, oh my gosh, I have so much anxiety. And then there's food sensitivities, all sorts of different things that seem, that have all come down in their volume. And, but it doesn't, it's not... Like sometimes I'll be like, oh my gosh, I feel so good and so happy for like a day, and then or day or two, and then it's like my brain's going, no, no, we're gonna bring you back down. Like it's not a straight line process; it's an up and down as it seems as my brain is rewiring and building these new neural pathways. Tell me where I'm wrong or how that fits for you.
1: No, nothing's wrong. This is your experience. <laughs> um, <laughs> so <laughs> in your experience, that sounds completely and. In- Normal, and it sounds exactly what our mind does. There's a part of it where I think we are addicted to our previous patterns. And to really detangle that fear and anxiety, the day where we say, oh my gosh, I feel great. And then wait, what about my stomach? What about my lower (laughs) back? How is (laughs) the brain being activated? And then it's three days later, you're like, why did I ask that? And it is our habitual conditioning. And I think there's nothing wrong with it. I think the awareness, I love what Jack Kornfield talks about. He says, When his the smart mind goes off and gets you in the anxious state, say, oh, thank you, smart mind. I don't need you right now. And let that go. And I think that makes, it's that awareness like, oh, I don't need to think about this thought. I don't need to even entertain that. Sometimes, for example, like a a simple neural shift I've done for myself is sometimes I think about somebody I was acquainted with and I think, oh, maybe I'll Google them. And then instead of Googling them, I send them metta, which which is is a loving kindness practice where I just say, "May may you be healthy, may you be happy, may you be at ease. And then all of a sudden it's now they've received my presence and they're in my presence. And It's just like a simple way that we don't have to go down these rabbit holes unless we want to. And sometimes we want to entertain that worried mind. And I think it's okay to say, oops, I got caught too. The other day I was in the bath and the water was so warm. And I thought... When I was trying to do a meditation while I was in the bath, and I'm like, this is just too hot. I got to get out. So it's like, there's a point where it's like, right. how much mind over matter do you need to force yourself through?
0: That's so true. I was, so what I was doing this morning is long story, but like the car of my dreams came up two days ago. And so this morning I was getting it checked out and stuff. And she's, there's other buyers. And so, of course, my anxiety that, smart brain starts to get, oh my gosh, I'm going to, and I was like, okay, I'm just going to take 30 minutes. I'm going to just do a little meditation, but I had to really, and I know I brought down my fear brain, but it was it just, it can cycle back. But what if you don't get it? What if she won't take the price that you want? Those different things that I'm like, I'm just trying to let that go and settle and know that this is a big, exciting transaction. It wasn't even fear based, more. It's like something I really want. And I was, as I was meditating, I thought this really feels about, feels like when I'm scared, but I'm really excited. It's something I want and they feel so similar. And so that was a a neat awareness and it's as good as it got. I wasn't going to be zen and calm in that whole
1: piece. And excitement's a normal part of life, and fear is. I think the beautiful thing that you're pointing out is that physiologically, excitement and fear activate the same physiological patterns. And by honing in on that, you get the elevated heart rate, the increased blood pressure, increased sweating, increased mind. And it's really the decision to say, wait, is this excitement or fear? And I want to be clear, when we talk about our emotions, scientists at UC Berkeley have identified 27 core emotions. Underneath those 27 core emotions, there are these, we have feeling states. And then these feeling states all the way expand to hundreds, to even thousands. And so when we really can begin to explore when I'm excited my heart races, my mind moves. And then you begin to differentiate, okay, when I'm in fear, I'm excited and I shut down. That's really different. And so when you can begin to parcelate those out, it's really important. But it's like, for as long as we're breathing, no matter what, we're going to experience all of these emotions. You can't not. And so What really mindful awareness is just coming into the state of, oh, this is what I'm experiencing and recognizing the story, the emotion, and the thought pattern that's under it. And when I think about emotional states, we think about it in terms of the frequency. So how frequent does this happen? The duration and then the intensity, right? So how intense is on a scale of 1 to 10? and those kind of questions also help with managing those emotions.
0: Yeah. I think the other piece that's obviously squarely in your practice is this idea of compassion because often where I I'm finding more cultivation of compassion and I'm very happy about that because I would always be like I'm doing it wrong whether it's meditation whether it's work like oh you're doing it wrong you've got to do better. And I've started to adopt. What if I'm doing this just right? Like that thought will come up, or you know what? I can't do this wrong. This is life. Like I can't do life wrong. But I have been living with this perfectionist thing saying, no, if you were doing life right, it would look like this, or you'll, the weight, the body, whatever it is. Or, and I have loved when I remember, I can't do this wrong. I'm doing this just right. And that feels, it just, whether it's a really minor piece, like I, I shouldn't scratch my nose in meditation. That's really wrong versus, okay, I'm human. I'm going to scratch my nose right now and let it go. Or I did that. So what? Yeah, it, it creates more space somehow. And I don't, tell me what you think about that or.
1: Oh, I love that, you know, that you can't do anything wrong. <laughs> and I think that is the thing is that it's through our mistakes and our foibles that we learn. And I, coming back to meditation really quick is whoever said you can't scratch your nose in meditation? You know, <laughs> I think I've that a long time ago. Part of meditation is the awareness of kinesthetic movement. Scratching your nose and doing that is very normal. <laughs> and at the same time, just like, having a thought that comes through your mind. And actually when I teach meditation, if you know that question comes up, do I move, do I not move? If you tend to be a person who moves a lot, then working with your edge, building that window of tolerance would be I would advise you to try to move less. If you're a person who's so rigid and doesn't say I'm never going to move, I'd say, give yourself a break and scratch. And it's working with those edges and seeing where you can soften. And what you're doing with that rephrasing and offering yourself that compassion, I can't do this wrong, is that it's bringing in the okayness for being exactly who you are. I know. Even when you say that, that's such a relief. Like, there's nothing I need,
0: another phrase that I use for that to be okay with who I am is there's nothing to fix, plan, analyze, because there's always, I think I just grew up with a neural network. I've got to be different. I've got to be better. And so I'm always reaching versus just like what you said, you're okay just the way you are is like a really bomb to my soul and one that I need to repeat over and over again.
1: Yeah. And we don't hear that enough. And I think from our earliest days in school, we're trained that we're doing things wrong. We're looking back, and we're getting these reports, and we're told where we don't succeed, and we're focused. And it's a bit of a deficit-based model that we look for in our whole society, rather than saying, you did these 10 things right today, and even telling yourself, like, wow, you did a lot. You know, I— I similarly feel like, oh, I didn't get enough done. And then I write a list and I say, oh, you did actually a lot. And (laughs) there's this illusion and delusion that we think we need to be superhuman. And when it comes down to perfectionism, there's two forms in psychology. There's healthy and unhealthy. So healthy perfectionism is high striving and low concern with the outcome.
0: Oh, I like that.
1: Unhealthy perfectionism is really high striving and high concern for the outcome. And that's where that critique or the negative mindset comes in. And it's the same thing. When you think about ancient meditation, it's all about releasing our grasping, right? So when we're not focused on our attachments to the outcome, it's all okay. And I think we have this idea that it has to be done a certain way. And life is handing us a very different story and work to go through. And that is what is really beautiful is that the silly thing is we think we're doing stuff and we know what we're doing. I even was telling my assistant the other day, we were working on something. I said, it's not that big of a deal. We're just pretending we're working. (laughs) It's We're keeping ourselves busy, and we're doing our best, and we're trying to share the best things we can with other people, but it's all okay. And I think that space where we could just soften about things is really—I love that line, like, in the U2 song. It's, look ugly in a photograph. So much of people's selfies are, like, this perfectionistic idea— what happened to being like totally weird in a photo and not looking a certain way? I love that. And I do think I really like
0: the perfectionist, the healthy side, high striving, but unconcerned am concerned about the results. And I think I was an athlete and I think I thought if I'm harder on myself, I'll strive harder. But it wears out the system because it keeps me in that sympathetic. You're still, you're, oh, yeah, you got second place. That's not good enough. You suck, blah, blah, blah. Putting myself down was, a, was definitely a neural habit earlier in my life that I am loving the releasing of. And I'm like, is anybody going to catch me for being nice to myself? Almost like it's I'm breaking rules to be nice to myself.
1: Yeah, and you were wired with that pattern, Of being a competitive athlete. And I think what we do to sports and children in this like society is that we forget to let them and ask them, Did you have fun? Was that fun? Rather than, Oh, it wasn't first. I did something wrong. And it's, and I think it really reduces when it comes back to even Buddhist teachings like the Brahma Viharas. Really sympathetic joy is being happy for someone else, right? So if you could teach children, like, I'm happy for the first place winner as myself, and their joy is my joy, this is our joy, all of a sudden, those stories of otherness, and it just becomes, oh, this is what today's event was. But guess what? Next time, it could be different.
0: True. Yeah.
1: And I think it... In that, that I'm happy
0: for the winner, it reduces the separation, which I think is really the source of a lot of pain that we have. I'm not okay until you love me, other people approve of, I'm looking for all this other stuff versus I'm okay with me and I'm okay with you. We're all okay.
1: Yeah. And I think the other thing too, though, is parental pressure that they put on children where there's this, the layering of, of that separateness. Yeah. So it's not taught. Oh, we came together as multiple teams, as multiple people, and we all did this event together. Even the last place person, it wouldn't have existed without that last ba- place person.
0: That's a neat <laughs> way of thinking about it. Like everybody is important. It makes up the whole experience. How do you help people deal with their in our corporate work? We have a lot of striving executives who want to climb the ladder. So there's a lot of ego. I think I'm right. I'm going to put my opinion out. I'm going to interrupt you. We all, I mean, the ego is normal. It's, it keeps us safe and it's an important part, but how do you help people work with that dynamic of opening their heart? I guess it really.
1: Yeah, I think there's, I think in a competitive work atmosphere, there are so many challenges, right? Because again, you're on that, how do I set myself apart? How do I become a leader, a star? And there's a lot of really good things about wanting to do your best. There's a lot of great things about having ambition. And so I don't want anybody to feel any sort of shame about that. I think that when we begin to not see our colleagues and the people we work with and for as partners and allies, and we look at them as somebody that I have to dominate, then I think that's what you're talking about, the interrupting. And it, it's really interesting in a corporate setting in the sense that you're not just dealing with, you're dealing with cultural expectations, you're looking at gender differences, and you could have people who have been marginalized for a lot lar- part of their life. And I think that for people who tend to have a lot of the power to step back and listen more and really listen. And it's one of the basic things of mindful communication that people who tend to speak more step back and people who tend to hold on and not speak up as much to speak up. And so it's really, that's the piece of it. And mindful listening really begins with truly listening and not planning what you're saying or imagining what you're going to say or how you're going to counter. Because sometimes people get in these conflict situations that you're having to resolve, (laughs) which a lot of it has to do with not listening. And they could just be saying the same exact thing, but they're just using different words because words have a million meanings to different people. And so it's really listening, taking a pause. If there is a lot of conflict, I always say, give yourself 24 hours before you ever even decide to send an email. Get it out, but let it just sit. (laughs) Yeah. And the truth is, when we act from fear and anger, we're actually not acting out of an open heart. We're acting from a closed heart. And we're not going to really respect others and respect ourselves. But- When we have that open mind, even going into a meeting and taking three deep breaths before you sit in and you have to give a big presentation or you're wanting to advocate and ask for a raise, giving yourself the space to do that, to recenter your energy. And because it's a challenge. And it was interesting because talking about conflict resolution, my dad advised me early on, he was a, he had his own company and I was going in and asking for a raise at a job and I said, I just don't, I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. And he said, you have to make people feel uncomfortable. (laughs) So that was something that I really appreciated learning from him. You know, that sometimes the discomfort is where that change happens and people could take on bigger projects, their creativity can show. And so it's, if you're always just Avoidant, then you're never going to really be living from your true heart space and that love, yes. so part of your ego is having the self-respect for yourself to speak up
0: and I think, oh, though, what you're adding, which I really appreciate with the mindful communication and the fear and anger is really even being able to track is my heart open? And could I actually be a full me, what's it, like my ego, but still, be interested in you. And that's the connection part. And then we may disagree and I may be uncomfortable in something, but I'm not, I'm not trying to smush you to get my point across or win or dominate. And that is certainly a nirvana. It's not always easy to manage that because of course I feel threatened and you're going to get me or whatever those old tapes come up. But I think it is the pausing, the taking three deep breaths, seeing you as a partner not a not somebody i have to dominate or even an object many times people don't even see the other person as a human <laughs> you're a cog in my wheel and i need you to agree so i can get this to happen so really allowing much more humanness because if i'm doing that to you i'm not i'm doing that to me i'm treating myself as an object as well
1: yeah and i think the other thing too is when somebody's so steadfast in something to say why is that yeah can you so help important? me understand Yeah. And once you ask why and okay, and what is it you need from me? How can, you know, and then saying, okay, and then coming back to what is the expectation? And can you meet the expectation? Are you willing to meet the expectation? And I think that's where you start with that dance.
0: Yeah, that's great. Great insight. Hey, you do have your book, insight into a
1: bright mind. Can you say a little bit about that for our listeners? Yeah. My book really was a genesis of coming out of creating a new dialogue about people who are neurodiverse, have different brain wiring, and to really advocate for looking at individuals from their strengths rather than their weaknesses. And neurodiversity really encompasses about 20% of our population, It includes people from dyslexia, dyscalculia, autism, ADHD, sensory processing, differences in speech and production styles. And so I really wanted to offer a doorway into the brain, and I interviewed a number of people who talked about their struggles and also their beautiful strengths that they have and what they have to offer this world. So we could really learn to embrace all minds.
0: I love that.
1: So would a highly sensitive person be in the, on that spectrum? There, yeah, you would definitely have, when it comes to living with intensity and emotional abilities and having a larger, maybe limbic, frontal, insular cortex connection, <laughs> brain areas for emotional processing and empathy, they could definitely fit within that. And I I talk, I have a whole chapter about emotions and our spectrum of emotions. Excellent, because I'm a highly sensitive person. So
0: I'm going to read your book.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Anything you want to leave our listeners with? You've settled. Really enjoy being you and you're a million percent okay. Exactly (laughs) as you are. There isn't anything you have to do. (laughs)
0: Love it. That's just for me, folks. I'm just saying. (laughs) I'm going to take that one.
1: And how can our listeners learn more about you, connect to you? They can visit my website, NicoleTatro.com. My socials are Awesome Neuro. They can, I have a lot of videos come out. I have writings and you can connect with me for a speaking event or retreat via my website. Excellent. Thank you, Nicole. It's been delightful. Thank you for having me
0: you enjoyed this episode. Susan here. As a coach, a lot of my time is spent helping clients speak up in a direct and honest way in their relationships at home and at work. Chris Marie and I decided to create a speak up kit to help you do that for yourself. It's the best of our best work that we've gathered to help you. To learn more, go to thriveinc.com forward slash speak up. That's www. T-H-R-I-V-E-I-N-C dot C-O-M forward slash S-P-E-A-K-U-P.